The Women of Color STEM Conference and Consumers Energy presents Sending the Elevator Back Down. Will you be ready when the door opens? A professional development seminar. Featuring Executive Director of Leadership and Organizational Development, Angela Nadell. Vice President, Greg Salisbury. Executive Director of Gas Construction and Transmission Operations, Julie Hegedus. Director of Customer Experience, Trevor Thomas. And Human Resources for STEM Talent Acquisition, Monique Wells. Hear firsthand accounts from corporate leaders on how to utilize relationships for success, including developing and sustaining a mentor-sponsor relationship. Making the most out of a mentor or sponsor relationship takes much needed skills and a clear understanding of how to get the most out of every interaction. But first you have to be identified as someone who will be a worthwhile investment. We tell it like it is and provide honest commentary around what will encourage leaders to invest in you. Will you be ready when it's your time? Without further ado, the Women of Color STEM Conference and Consumers Energy presents Sending the Elevator Back Down. Will you be ready when the door opens? A professional development seminar featuring Angela Nadell, Greg Salisbury, Julie Hegedus, Trevor Thomas, and Monique Wells. Again, it is my pleasure. My name is Brandi Merritt. I'm with Consumers Energy, and we're so happy to welcome you today. The panel that you will be listening to today is Sending the Elevator Back Down. Will you be ready when the door opens? I'm so happy to present our panelists. We have Julie Hegedus from Consumers Energy, Trevor Thomas, Angela Nadell, and Greg Salisbury. And we actually saved the best for last. Our moderator today is going to be Monique Wells. She will guide you through the process and have great fulfilling discussion. Monique, would you come on up for us? Let's give everyone a hand. Wonderful, Brandy. Thank you so much. And thank you all for being in attendance. We are truly excited to engage in this discussion today. Um, I have a panel of very distinguished colleagues, um, I can also say friends, um, but amazing people all around. I'm, I'm excited for you to get to know who they are, but more importantly, excited for you to hear about the diversity of perspective, experience, and not only that, but um, leave with something um, and thinking about things in the space of mentorship and sponsorship in a way that you have not before. So some might ask, why sending the elevator back down? Will you be ready when the door opens? We will assume several things today. We will assume that everyone in this room knows the power of mentoring. And the fact that we need it is something that we believe in consumers energy. I full scale believe, and I know the panelists do as well. We will also assume that we all understand the power of sponsorship and sponsorship across all segments, all realms, and how effective it can be for making sure that there's equity within our organizations. If we know that to be true, and we understand how, how um, powerful that can be, well, what happens in a space 
where you all have the opportunity to have that elevator sent back down. Are you ready and are you prepared? Let's presume that there is a CEO or an executive that has you in their crosshairs and they have already determined that you are fully functioning, fully capable, you are ready for fulfilling your, your career plans and your goals. The question then becomes, what is your elevator pitch if they walk up to you in the hallway, right? What is your career aspiration relative to who they are and their position? How can they help you? So there's effectiveness in understanding how to be prepared. And the people that we have here with you are gonna talk about their experiences and things that they've encountered along their journey. And I know that you will be richly um, rewarded for the things that you're able to take away. So with that, instead of a long litany of bios and amazing accomplishments, and we're just gonna assume you know all that about them. Look them <laughs> up on the internet, you can find it. So instead of doing that, what we're going to do actually is we're going to allow them to introduce um, themselves to you through some of their successes and some of the people who've sent the elevator back down for them. And that will begin our discussion today. And we will get started with Greg Salisbury. Thanks, Monique. When I think about this, uh, this elevator visual, it actually uh, brings to mind two mentors of mine. Uh, one from really early. Like when I first met Ken Moore, I was 21. And he was a mentor of mine uh, during a time I went off and pursued an MBA and then came back to work. And at, this was 1998. There was all kinds of hiring in the beginning of the dot-com boom. And all of my classmates had all these fancy jobs. And I was going back to be a frontline supervisor on night shift with 45 people my parents' age. If people ask me at business school, do you have a P&L responsibility? I, I, I said, no, no, just keeping the line running. And uh, what I learned from Ken is the importance of having somebody who's good for you, not just good to you. And it really caused me to think differently over the years about how to respond to mentoring and how to deliver mentoring. And it takes a lot of trust. And so as, as we talk more today, maybe we'll get into that concept of trust. But trusting him that that was the right job for me I only did it for six months, but I tell more stories from those six months about leadership than any other six months of my career. And I would have never selected that job. It was really a gift that he gave me uh, in the form of being good for me, not just good to me. Wonderful, thank you. Anthony? Sure, when I think about sending the elevator back down, I, it's hard for me to not start at where my journey began. Um, growing up in a biracial home under the poverty level and just being able to get out and be able to be the first one to graduate from college on both sides of my parents' families. Um, they taught me love, they taught me to pursue that college degree, um, but they couldn't help me with my career aspirations, didn't know how to you know, send me down the path of where to even start. So I really had to lean into teachers as mentors, and when I graduated from college, um, it was very hard for me to find a job in the HR field with no experience, so I, I took a job in the staffing industry. And I worked really hard. And one of my customers, actually, who um, was an HR manager at a manufacturing plant, took the time to kind of mentor me and, and said, you know, I know you're in this branch sales manager job. You're probably making good money. But what would you think about taking an HR uh, coordinator position here 
doesn't make a lot, but it's, it's your ticket into this field that you really are passionate about and want to be a part of. And I thought long and hard about that, and I eventually took that opportunity. And that opportunity allowed me to go in as an HR coordinator, work my way up to a plant HR manager, eventually become a regional manager where I had multi-site global responsibility. Um, and so I guess my message is you never know who that person is going to be what that person is going to look like. Your eyes and ears have to be open. It could be a customer, right? It could be anyone that's gonna send that elevator down and you have to be ready and willing to take that opportunity even when that opportunity may mean a pay cut, right? And which is hard for us to think about and talk about, but you have to think about the long-term vision about is this opportunity gonna get me to the position that I wanna be for the long haul? So. Wonderful, thank you so much. Trevor. Awesome. <clears throat> What uh, comes to mind is the number of times I didn't accept no. Uh, I remember a moment when I wanted to work on the campaign to elect Michigan's first female governor, and I was graduating college, and it's uh, my senior year, and I was denied an internship. And then when I'm graduating, I decided to cold call uh, her communications director, Jennifer Granholm was the candidate, and Chris DeWitt picks up the phone and uh, he wonders who in the world I am. And I said, hey, I wanna help you change the world and I really want you uh, to just give me 10 minutes. So he met me at a Wendy's off Portland between Grand Rapids and uh, Lansing. And uh, he hired me uh, and that was a pay cut from even waiting tables and bartending before that. But I just wanna note that never accept no, uh, continue to network but even if you're 20 years old and you have almost no network, uh, you really can cold call and Google and try to see if someone will give you a shot because I rarely have found someone not willing to respond or not willing to give you 10 minutes. Uh, and so just remember that because people want to, uh, I think, do the right thing at the end of the day. That's good. Awesome. Well, when I think about this uh, topic, I have to go back to when I graduated uh, from College of Engineering and I had a job at DTE Energy and I was in the lab. And I had all these ideas of how the lab could be. I had worked previously at Dow Automotive when I was in college and the lab was doing a very small scale of what Dow Automotive was doing at DTE and I had all this vision of like, we could make more money, we could do more things, we could be um, growing the company here instead of, uh, you know, being a money sucker, you know, it was taking up all this money and I thought we could really grow this. So I made this proposal, presented it to my manager uh, and she turned me down. She said, nope, I have no desire to grow this area. Um, that's not the direction we're looking to go in thank you, but no thank you. And I thought, wow, I really thought this was a good idea. And she just completely dismissed it. And so I left there thinking, maybe this isn't the right fit uh, for me here. And the next week, the director of operations uh, at DTE came up to me and asked, you ready to get out of that, those four walls of the lab? You ready to come play in the field? And I'm thinking, I don't know anything about that. <laughs> I'm an engineer, I don't know anything about operations. And he said, well, I got an opportunity. If you're, if you're bored with that, come see me. So I thought, oh my gosh, how am I gonna do that? 
Um, I don't know anything about that. I haven't been trained in that. But I'll, okay, so I went back a week later and sure enough, I tried. And I ended up, like Greg was saying, around leading folks that were my father's age uh, and being the first female um, in the history of the company in that department, uh, leading that group, they hated me out the gate. And uh, that opportunity was just so rewarding. They taught me the basics of field operations and um, the stuff that you don't learn in engineering school, the real world stuff. And that opportunity till this day has been one of the most, um, just I grew so much in that opportunity um, by being open to something that I didn't think I could really do. That's wonderful. I think one of the common things I've heard throughout your responses as that, you know, sometimes I think even though we won't admit it, we do believe people will roll out the red carpet for us to send the elevator back down. I know when I vision the elevator, I'm at the Four Seasons, right? <laughs> and so it's a nice elevator and there's carpet that leads to it. But what you've identified is it's not going to look necessarily how you think it will. How has that formed and shaped the people that you have become, and we don't have to go in order, you can just hop in there. How does it impact not only who you've become and your perception of what, what ascension looks like, but how does, has it impacted who you have reached back out to? And then you open that. So what comes to mind is how much I didn't judge those that sent the elevator my way. Uh, by happenstance, many of the people that had hired me for my first several jobs were heterosexual Caucasian males. And the gap uh, that was between us was that uh, in the early 2000s, it was still against the law for men to have sex with men. And even today, it's still legal to fire someone for being gay, lesbian, bisexual, or transgender. And growing up in Martin, Michigan of Ottawa County, uh, it was a place where my first several bosses, you'd have no idea where they stood on such an issue. Uh, marriage equality didn't exist. Uh, and so in my heart, I was always in a different place than those I reported to. And I think the struggle I had was finding a balance uh, to maintain my integrity, uh, to, but to make sure that I was a top performer. And they ended up being some of my biggest advocates uh, to this day. Uh, however, I'm very aware uh, and conscious that uh, if I had something to do with some of their change of thinking, that's great. Uh, but I don't think they're all the way there yet. So it's not necessarily this great story. But I think um, I am consistently mindful of those reporting to me and on my team of how I am different from them. And I think often about uh, my early 15-year-old uh, self. That's powerful. Um, really. Yeah, so uh, a, few, a handful of years back, I had the opportunity to be the campaign director for United Way and, uh, and with Consumers Energy. It was uh, a really exciting opportunity, but it was of Jackson County. And I live in Wayne County, and um, I was like, how do I help here? Um, but then I got involved in that organization, and it was uh, really rewarding seeing how, you know, 40% of Michigan, Michigan folks cannot pay basic needs um, to their, you know, utility bills, they put food on the table for their family. And um, that really spoke to me, having young children and not struggling with that. Um, but as a part of that, I got to partner with one of our senior officers. 
And little did I know that part of that opportunity was um, going to be to do the Coney Challenge. <laughs> and part of that was wearing a hot dog costume. And so, you know, I ended up putting that on. And, you know, that built our affinity and relationship and um, with that senior officer that I never had before. And so just going back to the same thing, we don't always know what it's going to look like when that opportunity comes. And had I said no to that, I would have never had that opportunity uh, to, to connect with somebody at such a high level at the time. And I was much lower in the organization. And uh, it just really opened doors that I would have never known. So um, you really got to take those opportunities when they come, even if they don't always make sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So Greg, tell us a little bit more about Ken. How did Ken impact your life speaking with the, um, people are not always as they seem they don't necessarily look as if you thought they would look. Their impact on you might actually be bigger than or broader than you thought it could ever be. Tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, for sure. Uh, there was a time when I was in a transition stage from, uh, from manager to director. So I was moving to a level where I was going to be leading people who lead people. And uh, I was at a plant. We had a new plant manager, Ken Knight, super smart guy. Uh, MIT, MBA, Georgia Tech, undergrad engineer, and uh, very driven guy and intense. And what I thought I was supposed to do is make sure everything was perfect. And, and I knew enough about the group to do that. And, and he called me on it. And he said, you know, if, if I wanted you to do their jobs, I would, I would just have them work for me. And he really challenged me to step back and think differently about what, what it took to become a manager versus what took what it took to become a director. And it was a pretty tough message that was delivered a few times before it landed. And, uh, and it was a game changer because from one of the most intense people I ever worked for, I learned to be patient and allow for something other than exactly what I wanted to occur. And I saw the power of, of enabling decentralized command to happen and let people learn, make mistakes, and get stronger and really reduce my own stress level and, uh, and so through one of the most impatient guys I've ever worked for I learned patience <laughs> you see now that's not what we would normally want and I think we think about it as what we would want to develop us right when typically things that are comfortable never develop us right that's right <laughs> it's the things that make us uncomfortable like intense bosses yeah. right and they're not always kind and their words are not always feeling and they don't always make you feel comfortable but that's when you grow right sure. so Angela talk to us more about that you have some particularly um, great feelings about development and how that can help enrich us yes um, I think everyone in this room would agree that um, you know there's something to be learned from every mentorship. And so one of the things I'm gonna start off by saying is not all mentors are created equal. And so you may find um, partway through that relationship that this is a mentor you need to bless. I call it bless and release. Um, thank them for their time. And, and sometimes the learning is what not to do, right? And, but you need to be aware of where your opportunities are when you go into that relationship. So you need to, to be able to gauge whether or not this person can help you fulfill those opportunities and gaps that you're trying to develop in. Um, I've experienced both, but you have to, you have to own that yourself. Um, I would say one of my biggest uh, successes in, in what I call 
uh, kind of claim to fame is I always, um, when I walked into Consumers Energy, I was a manufacturing um, automotive kind of plant person. That was my background. Um, and I happened to be in the field of HR, but I understood operations. I didn't understand a, utility, uh, a regulated utility company. And so I walked into Consumers Energy and I said, I get HR, I get leadership, but I'm gonna say, I'm gonna show humility and say, I don't know anything about how we make money. I don't know anything about how we run this business. I don't know anything about the regulatory construct. And so I started building out what I call my personal board of directors. And I would encourage all of you to think about who needs to be on your board of directors. I knew quickly that I needed someone to help me with my financial acumen. I knew that I needed someone to be able to speak to me about our, our regulatory environment and what happens at the MPSC. I knew that I needed somebody to tell us um, how we lay pipe in the ground and, and what transmission means. And so I sought those people out and I looked, well, I would say this, you don't always know when those people are going to be available and be willing to give you the time. But to Trevor's point, I was very persistent. I knew what I wanted and I knew where my gaps were. That said, I feel compelled to tell you, every one of those people that helped me did not look from a physical perspective like I thought they would look, right? Coming from the background I came from, I was always seeking out people that walked my same story to help me because I thought they would understand. It doesn't always have to be that. And so don't be afraid. Clear your unconscious bias, I guess, is what I would say. Don't be afraid to step out and seek out someone that may have a different perspective or a different way of life or a different story because the greatest development can happen when you find that partnership. That's powerful. That's absolutely powerful. So in, in keeping with that, though, you, you touched on something great. That means that to develop that board of directors, um, you might have to come to know and the truth about who you really are, and that might not always be easy. Um, can anyone talk about developing an understanding of yourself to know where your blind spots are and knowing how to get people who can around you who can build you up in that in that sense? Yeah, I would say I had a pretty significant near miss in, uh, in this area of self-awareness. Uh, I had changed companies similar to what Angela was talking about and thought I had this mandate to get a bunch of stuff done in a hurry at a, at a company in an industry I'd never worked in. And uh, I still have the file of all the notes I took from all the one-on-ones I had with all the executives who hired me. And, uh, and so I was like a tsunami on the organization. And about a year in, we were at the doorstep of organ rejection. And uh, there was a HR partner who cared enough to collect some feedback about me and sit down and say, you know, what they're saying about you is they're they thought they were glad they hired you. You know what they need you to know, but they're not sure they want you on their team. And uh, that was a pretty yeah. difficult intersection <laughs> to find myself. Yeah. And, uh, and processing that, I had to decide, did I want to stay or not? Like, it was that tangible. And uh, I decided that if they wanted to get rid of me, they were going to have to get rid of me because I wanted to stay. And I wanted to go through this journey of self-awareness that, that uh, we've been speaking about here. And I... I had to tap into some reading material. I read The Speed of Trust because trust was really the fundamental gap that I was facing. And uh, a friend of mine says that's like reading stereo installation instructions, but trust me, it's a good <laughs> book. And, uh, and then I spent some time with the Clifton Strengths Finder and really 
had to accept the fact that my strengths are a little bit difficult for people to receive in the absence of trust. And if you know anything about Gallup and the Clifton, they talk about balconies and basements. And I realized I had a whole bunch of people I was supposed to be leading who were in the basement with me. And you can't lead from, you can't lead people in the basement because everything you say gets turned into a negative. And, uh, and it took me about a year of a sort of leadership 12-step program to right the wrongs and apologize to the people who I needed to apologize to and realize that, that I can't change my strengths. The beauty of knowing your strengths is you realize that's who you are. That's hardwired. You will never, you can't take a bottom item and move it to the top. But I figured out if I could build trust, then people would perceive who I am through the, through the lens of the balcony and not the basement. Now, that's a long road to recovery because you can't go sit with somebody and fix it in a conversation. It takes demonstrated, re repeated behavior over time. And, and I didn't change who I was, but I changed how I delivered it. And there were people who thought I was faking it. And uh, I had to overcome that as well. But, but a really humbling time in my career uh, where, where I almost didn't make it. And five years later, I had five promotions and was a vice president. And, and uh, the, the leader who took me through that and the HR partners who, who were the guardrails um, really created in me this, this desire to pay it forward. Because I can't ever pay it back to those people. Um, I would, if they walked in today, I'd go give them a hug. But what I've tried to do is, is just apply that learning. And I feel it's my duty to them to find other people who need to go through this journey of self-awareness, followed by awareness of others, followed by trust and then leadership. I'm, I'm so happy because it made me a better leader. It made me a better dad. It made me a better community member. Uh, but boy, there were some tough days there, for sure. Amazing. Trevor, talk to us about that introspective thought. I know you, it drives well, you as well. <laughs> I can relate to Greg's story. I screwed up a lot and, uh, and uh, was called out for it last summer. So I was asked to speak at a diversity conference on white privilege, and I went to the person that knows me most, uh, my boyfriend of several years, who's also African-American, and I said, Brandon, at, at dinner, uh, I need you to create a list, if you're up for it, of how I exercise uh, white privilege and may not be aware of it at all. And he said, one, he was happy to create the list, but two, <laughs> he was, uh, but two, um, he said, I can tell you something that happened today. And so he's at a Fortune 500 company here in Detroit, and one person he was mentoring came to him and said that uh, she was the best person for a job that she was going for. Uh, she was the only person of color on the candidate slate. And she made the um, observation that the entire candidate committee uh, was Caucasian. And so Brandon had said, you could uh, take a stand by not serving on all white hiring committees. And when he had said that uh, at Texas Roadhouse, I said um, that I had served on three all-white hiring committees in 2018. This was August of 18. And I could have named them immediately. And all three of them had all-Caucasian hiring slates for candidates. And so uh, I have not um, uh, proactively required my team to do it, but I have taken a stand, uh, and members of my team have matched me in the stand 
uh, by making sure that in our department, in our world, we do not have uh, all white hiring committees, uh, which oftentimes leads to diverse candidate hiring slates. Uh, and so that was my wake up call last August. Uh, and I removed myself from one committee over the summer uh, that I didn't think was there, uh, but I didn't give them a hard time. I just told them where I was. Uh, but I think because there are multiple Fortune 500 companies going through this, uh, this does happen everywhere. Uh, and so that's something that I continue to be mindful of. And that's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Julie, did you want to add anything to that? Yeah, I guess for me the is feedback. Uh, feedback is, is truly a gift, and I know many of you heard that, but it's really internalizing that feedback. Um, I had been given feedback uh, about how when I'm approached about certain questions, I come off as defensive, and that makes me unapproachable, and it shuts people down. And I really had to reflect on that a lot and uh, read some self-help books on how to be better in that area because I didn't want to come off that way, but I had to learn my triggers. I had to learn what triggered me to react that way. Uh, and it's, it's often that it's, they're just questions because the person's trying to understand, not because they're challenging my thinking or because they don't think I know, they're just trying to understand. So if you, now I'm trying to remember when I get in that situation and I'm feeling triggered, to think about the fact that they're just trying to learn. And that's really powerful. Um, and when you think about that, my stress level tends to go down, my you know, blood pressure tends to go down, and, I, and then I can clearly articulate the point I'm trying to make rather than coming off as defensive and pushing people away. So, um, but you have to really internalize that feedback and look in the mirror and make change. Yeah. And it's not always something that's easy to do. Um, that's why it's good to have people around you who will call you out on the things you are beautiful at, great at, a rock star, you are amazing, but where you absolutely suck, right? <laughs> yeah. And you don't yeah. do things in as best, you know, in the, the stellar way that you want. Um, the thing that came to mind, Trevor, when you talked about making a decision, right, a stand that you would want to take, I think I want to take that a step farther, too, is to encourage any spaces where we are, where we see whether it's even a diversity of thought. Am I sitting in a room making decisions with everybody who thinks like me? Or am I sitting in the room with people who get ticked off? about the same things I get kicked off about. And Julie, we would be really nice in the same room because we're like A-type personalities. And I wouldn't even see that, but somebody else would. Because they would say, when both of y'all talk together, nobody can get a word in, right? <laughs> exactly. So I do want to open it up for questions because we have a couple of things that we're going to get to a little bit later. But I do want to maximize the opportunity for you to ask our panelists very raw, very, I mean, if you have the question, we have the time to answer it right now. And I don't want to monopolize that because I can ask some questions for the next two hours. So <laughs> let's take, if, if there's anyone who has a burning question right now or uh, something they would like to ask our panelists. Sure. Well, I think, um, so for me, you, it, it goes back to uh, uh, Greg's point about self-awareness, right? So you do have to be able to reflect on, is this something that I have a blind spot on and I'm blessing and releasing because I don't want to hear it? Or, um, you know, 
is it something that the person who's, like I said, there are some mentors and people to give feedback. You've got to figure out how to cut out the noise. And so what I personally do is I make sure my board of directors has more than a few people on it, right? So validate that. If someone gave you feedback about how you showed up and, and there were more people in the room, seek out those other perspectives. And typically, if there's power in numbers, right? So if you're hearing it from more than one person, then you need to do some more self-reflecting. That is a great question. And yes, you should be refreshing your board of directors as your development gaps change, like right? Your personal um, aspirations. Your board of directors should be a fluid thing that you are, you are refreshing, you're reflecting on it, you're saying, okay, what did my leader tell me my development gaps are? What do I think my development gaps are? What do I know about this next position that I want? What are the skills required for that? And who do I need to, where, where do I have empty spaces on my board of directors? And what am I gonna do about it? Because I will tell you, um, it typically doesn't happen where somebody comes knocking on your door. So you have to want it and you have to be ready for it. And again, those opportunities, I mean, I think about how I um, was able to close some of my gap. I am still, I still have a long way to go on the financial acumen piece. Um, some of it is just you're in a conversation with someone and you, and you realize they just threw out a nugget and they're willing to help you. And so you immediately, okay, this is the person. I'm going to go, we're going to go to lunch. We're going to go however I can. I'm going to take the nuggets I can and I'm going to continue. And then when you have the next conversation with that person, reflect on what you learned from them. Tell them what you're getting out of that relationship and they will be there. They will show up for you um, through and through. Anyone else want to add to that? I'll just add the accountability on yourself. Uh, I sought out because I didn't want to be pigeonholed in government affairs. So I wanted to go to customer experience. They had named a new vice president of customer experience. And we didn't know each other very well. And so I found accountability to reach out, ask her to serve as a mentor. But I had pre-drafted a mentee-mentor agreement. Uh, I asked her to make a commitment to the process uh, that we put our devices down, that we would commit to meeting in person, despite I live in Detroit and she's in Grand Rapids. Uh, and now I work for her. So it worked out, uh, but there's a great deal of responsibility, even if you cold reach out to someone to be on your board of directors, uh, to make sure every time we meet, I put forward an agenda at least the day before so that she knows what's on my mind, what questions I'm going to ask, because if I'm presenting questions and asking for advice in the moment, she hasn't had a lot of time to think it through. If we only have 45 minutes or less, it's really helpful for the, uh, the robustness and quality of the conversation to be able to give her a heads up of what's top of mind for me. Uh, and so I would just point that out, that there are tactical things you can do uh, to be able to make it a success. Yeah. Did you want to add something? Okay, so Greg, I know you have several mentor, mentee, sponsorship, whatever you <laughs> call it. <laughs> and so in those, uh, in those meetings, in those sessions, I know you have a passion and a desire to be that voice that gives people the feedback that they really need that's gonna result in them being better people, better employees. Mm -hmm. Talk to us about how that has evolved. How have you been able to kind of help them through things that maybe would have been pitfall for them, and then yourself as well. Sure. First, I think uh, an important 
fact to remember is that it takes as much courage to, to help somebody as it does to ask for help, believe it or not. And, and, in, and in my own journey, uh, as I gained access to a more and more diverse group of people who I had a chance to work with and develop, I, it took more courage. And I'm a little bit of an adrenaline junkie, so I like that rush of, I don't know if I can help her or not, but I want to try. Um, and the more I did that, the more I found out that some of the same blockers I had are exist in the in the journey of people who have a totally different background than me. And so this issue of kind of what makes us human, what makes us who we are, what are our strengths, is, is universal. And that has helped me find common ground with lots of lots of protégés or mentees or folks I just work with. Um, and it got me past that fear of, can I really make a difference or not? Mm -hmm. and, and some of the same dysfunctions that my strengths bring me, the, the same strengths bring other people. And so for me to be part of somebody's journey, I, I like to start with the whole notion of get to know who you really are and mm -hmm. understand your strengths and how you show up in the world through their eyes, not through your eyes. And I find that that was so valuable to me and, and it's been valuable to people that I've, that I've taken through that same journey. And in helping them get to know their own strengths, it's amazing how often it can help them find their own confidence. Yeah. And that whatever it is in the world that has been eroding their confidence, they hold within themselves the ability to be liberated from that just by knowing their strengths and realizing that how, how, they, how they show up and how it's going to feel like to work with them. And helping people be able to sit down with someone and say, this is who I am, this is how it's going to feel because of who I am, and these are my, this is my intent, and this is my why, and that sets this foundation for trust uh, and, and allows people to find that they have the ability to bring their whole selves to work without having to change the work. Just make that decision to own who you are and know what's great about it and what isn't, and it's okay. Yeah. It you are worthy. Yes. I, I would say very little of the most relevant feedback I've ever received came through a formal feedback process. So I think formal feedback processes are necessary. But nice plug, really. But, uh, <laughs> but it's really been in in one on ones. It's often been through through human resources partners who who saw something that was happening that I didn't see, or other peers who saw something that was happening that I didn't see and, and came and called me on it. Someone was experiencing me with human, with human resources as part of an extended staff. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I value a human resources partner as an extended staff member mm -hmm. because the other person may not even realize that things aren't working. It, but, but a really empathetic and observant human resources partner would say, hey, I, I know what you were trying to do. I don't think it landed that way with the team. Would you like to, would you like to look into it together? And, and then they looked into it, and we were able to identify gaps and, and fix them. It takes me about three days to process one of those that lands, for sure. Like I, I, uh, I've learned through mistakes that I have to put a space between stimulus and response in those situations where it is a formal issue, and uh, usually after a couple runs or a long bike ride and some chance to just process, I, 
I find that I'm able to think about what's been said and connect it to who I know I am. And, uh, and that takes me back to that foundation that these are my strengths, I can't change them, but I can get to know you better so that you understand the, what I was trying to do when I did something that, that bothered you. And that's been my escape route, but, but it takes a while to process those type of direct hits uh, because it's like the stages of grieving. Denial, anger, bargaining has to come before acceptance, and I've, I've spent time in each of those steps. You're listening to Sending the Elevator Back Down. Will you be ready when the door opens? A professional development seminar featuring Angela Nadell, Greg Salisbury, Julie Hegedus, Trevor Thomas, and Monique Wells. Brought to you by Consumers Energy and the Women of Color STEM Conference. Uniting women in STEM by continuing the press for progress. Be sure to check out our social media pages on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. But, but I think you said it. You know, you had mentioned when you could accept the feedback, you had a foundation of trust. And so I think that that is really important. And again, remember what I said, so not all leaders not all HR people, um, people that want to give you feedback. Sometimes you you have to decide, this is good feedback and this is feedback that I'm going to listen to and maybe say, what would you have done differently? Um, and then you have a choice to make. So, you know, I've been given plenty of feedback throughout my career that I've chosen to put in a pile over here where I don't do a lot with. And then there's a lot of feedback that I've had to do exploring, self-reflecting, and decide what to act on. But I found the most valuable feedback to come from those that I had a foundation of trust. And I spent that time building, as, as Greg mentioned, you know, just getting to know those people before they could just come at me with the feedback. Mm -hmm. And I would also say, um, you know, ask for the specific examples. And it's not just about feedback. HBR just did an article on you know, the, the difference between feedback and advice. Feedback is something you can't go back. It's in the past, right? An event happened, you can't change it. But ask for the advice. Well, what would you do differently next time? How would you have handled that? You know, what can I do to show up differently in the future? But I think that you said it yourself. There was a lack of trust. And I would also say it should be a two-way conversation. So if someone is giving you feedback or advice and it, it feels very one-way, you know, keep, keep an eye out for that because it should definitely be a two-way conversation. Well, hello. hello. <laughs> My name is Camille Banks. So this is a question that I have. Um, what is the difference or what do you feel about paying for an executive coach versus finding a mentor who is astute, someone you aspire to become or revere? I mean, what... What is the difference, in your opinion? When should we use one over the other, make that investment versus, I mean, you, you know, that's always just been my question. What do you think of the two relationships? I feel like I've been talking a lot, but I'm, I'm happy to share. It's okay, don't worry. Okay, okay. so um, executive coaches definitely serve their purpose. I would say it depends on what your development gap is, right? So if you are looking you have to be really aware of what it is you're trying to achieve. And a lot of times, if that has to do with business acumen, 
an executive coach may not be able to provide you that business acumen you're looking for. Um, technical skills, right? So how do I become um, a better engineer? An executive coach may not, unless they're an engineer by trade, be able to give you that. If you're looking for someone to help you with public speaking skills, an executive coach may serve that purpose. Executive presence, an executive coach may serve that purpose. Um, but I would really say be clear and specific in what it is you need to prepare yourself for and then align that with the person you're looking for. You may be able to find it internally and not have to incur the expense. Um, but I would say, you know, I've seen plenty of cases where executive coaches have served people well as well. Okay. You ever have a case where an executive coach served or, or did the opposite of serving someone well? Well, I would, I would say this. If they're not, you know, if their advice is different than your company culture or wherever it is that you're trying to store um, from a leadership perspective, that, that's something to watch out for. Okay. Wonderful, thank you for your questions. Any other questions? I think he knew, the gentleman that tapped me on the shoulder around coming over to operations, I think he knew that I was turned down for that proposal. Um, but I, I also think he knew I was highly motivated, really energetic, had fresh perspective, and um, you know was different than the rest of his staff. Um, and so I think he was, he was looking for that diversity of thought and that fresh perspective. Um, I know as a leader now, I'm always looking for that. I, there's a lot of value in having your staff completely different experiences, backgrounds, educations, you know, all of it. And um, I try to balance my team out that way specifically. And uh, it's proven to be very helpful uh, to drive results because they're so different. Not to say they don't challenge each other, but <laughs> but because they are so different, they bring just very um, unique styles of thinking and they grow um, leaps and bounds because they're so different, because they learn from one another. So I don't, I don't, I, I think he knew that I was turned down, but you know, going back to being turned down for things, don't let that stop you. Yeah. Um, you know, I have a saying, I joke around, that if you don't ask, you don't get. It, mm -hmm. And you can be turned down a hundred times, and, and that no might only be no for six months. It might be yes very shortly thereafter. So uh, it's worth trying again. So, yeah. yeah. Thank you for the question. Are there any other questions? I have said no to opportunities. Um, and I worried that when I said no, it was going to turn into never again will she get an opportunity. Um, but for me, the no came because it wasn't a right fit. It didn't feel right internally. It, you know, I slept on it. I thought about the opportunity and I thought that person might think it's good for me, but it's just not feeling right. There's something to be said about that gut reaction uh, and, and knowing that um, it just isn't the direction that you want to head. And it's okay to say no. I really believe that. Um, I have been given much many more opportunities after I said no. But, uh, it's got, but sometimes the, the opportunity may come and it's scary. And if it's, to me, there's a difference when it's scary or when it's a, not a good fit. If it's scary, you should take it. <laughs> if it's scary, it's because you got to face that fear. Yeah. And... Uh, and, and try, because you never know what 
facing that fear can provide you and what, um, how it can open up your eyes to so much greater. So different from Julie, I didn't come hardwired with a great perspective about saying no. Uh, luckily, one of the key leaders who has influenced me in my journey uh, also was willing to marry me. And uh, so, so uh, Joyce, uh, my wife, actually works for General Motors. And uh, she has always been this voice of reason when it comes to the next great opportunity, whether it's a project or a new job or a big move. And uh, she always helped, has always helped keep me grounded in this idea that you, you should write down in advance what matters in your life equation and be really careful about being tempted to say yes to something because you're afraid it's the only chance it'll ever come. If it gets sideways to what you've identified in advance, it's kind of your true north. And uh, she's kept me out of a lot of trouble with that advice over the years. And, uh, and she gets a spot on that kind of top five or six leaders who have influenced me. And it's a big project for her. Like 20 years she's been trying to teach me. <laughs> That's awesome. I'll just note that um, never feel alone, whether it's uh, your question or the feedback question. Uh, and I think it goes to the executive coach. I make sure I have a mentor or go-to person inside the company, but there's an inherent conflict of interest there. And then I make sure I have an external go-to person for balance. And then when I think of really tough decisions and choices, the most advice I give out right now in the company is through my role in our employee resource group. And so uh, if your company has employee resource groups, uh, you could consider reaching out through that avenue. If they don't, you can create it. We did not have an LGBT resource group at Consumers Energy a few years ago, and we created it. And so uh, whether, and what's extraordinary about shared experiences is there are people from throughout the company and there are all different walks of life in terms of experience as well. And so you've got junior employees and you've got senior leaders in the company. And that is a terrific outlet. You know, I think sometimes people think they're just networking or, okay, it's a newsletter. But really, there's a wealth of ability there to partner with someone and get their thinking. And anyone will give you their thinking. Uh, so just don't forget about that option. Wonderful. That's a good point. Yeah. Your question. Hi, this is a wonderful discussion. Um, my name is Celia Berry, and um, the question that I have is, I have worked at many, many companies where I'm the only person of color there, and um, including what I have now. So the question that I have is, um, do you, how would you approach your human resource group or whatever to say, you need diversity? in this company. If there's only three people of color and one person is the only engineer and the only person who's not working on the manufacturing floor out of 400 people, then you know you need diversity. But how would I approach HR without it being a career limiting experience? That's a good question. Well, I would hope sharing your perspective is always a safe place with your HR partners, but I think you know, everybody has customers, and so maybe it's from the lens of we don't look and feel like our customer base. And what are we doing about that, and how can I help? What motivates me is there's a war for talent. Mm -hmm. And companies are going to survive and thrive based on having access to the best talent. And talent 
comes in all shapes, sizes, and variants. And so if a company is, is choosing to limit their access to talent pools, that's just the beginning of a death spiral. Mm -hmm. Like I, I appreciate a diverse team to come together and make great decisions. But if I really boil it down to the raw edge, like if you're going to win, you're going to win with the best talent that you can find. And if you're willing to cut out a percentage of the pool, just because you can't get a selection committee put together that has an open mind, you're not going to be a winning team. And, and so if, if they can't get connected with it for any of the other great reasons, just leading and winning to me yeah, is really I'm, motivating. It, it can be, absolutely. I feel you. I mean, I, when I was um, 12 years ago, I was engineering and I was like one of the only females on the floor. It was all white men. And I'm like, what the heck am I doing here? And I actually challenged them to say, why are we recruiting at Michigan Tech where there's like 99% white males? Why are we not recruiting at places that have a melting pot of people from all walks of life? And um, when I asked that question, I had to obviously be ready to volunteer, right? Volunteer to go do that recruiting. <laughs> you know, put your money where your mouth is, right? So you have to be open to those opportunities. And I know I started recruiting at Wayne State and some of the areas that had different, just people from every area and experience. And uh, it it's changed the face of our company because at, at one point it was definitely not how we look today. So you just got to be willing to try and, and keep trying. And right, like if you don't ask, you don't get. So you tried once, but that no is only a no for so long. Keep trying, I would encourage you. Yeah. yeah. And for all of you, come on, on, come to the mic um, so that we can make sure that your, your questions are broadcast live as we stream. So go ahead, no pressure though. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Uh, this kind of want a uh, response to what the lady just said. <clears throat> Excuse me. Sometimes when you just speak and put things out there, it makes a difference. I was in a situation uh, where uh, my company, from time to time, they'll do uh, surveys or whatever. For some reason, I was picked. And they asked different questions, and some of them were, and I think it was around diversity was the topic. So they asked, well, you know, how do you think, you know, what do you think about diversity or how are we doing? So I said, well, when I look around, I think you've done a good job because we really have a very uh, diverse workforce and not just talking about people's ethnicities, but you know, we got a lot of young college yeah. students coming in, you got people close to retirement, in between yeah. people that have been coming in from different industries that have been experienced but not in our industry and so on and so forth. So I said, that's great. Yeah. But I said, I have a daughter that is going into, who's in STEM field, will be graduating soon. And I said, and I uh, mentor a lot of uh, teenagers and college students, and I said, if they're looking to be part of the management executive suite, well, I said, well, I look around, I said, I look at my management level, and I said, I don't see anybody that looks like me. Mm -hmm. Then I look at his manager, and I don't see anybody that looks like me. Mm -hmm. So it would really be hard to uh, mention, hey, hey, look at this place, if that's somebody who's really desiring to get up the ladder. Mm -hmm. Um, so when you do this, these things are confidential, so I don't know if they did anything with it. This person could have just thrown what I said away, but, uh, but what we had about a year later, we, you know, did a reorg and stuff, and at, like, the, uh, 
like a director level and higher and chief engineering level, they brought in some different diverse candidates. So I'd have no idea if I'd that say had take credit for anything. It. <laughs> <laughs> but somewhere either my thought wasn't yeah. alone, but it looked like they did make some effort to bring uh, people in not just ethnicity diversity, but yeah. other diverse type stuff from different groups that hadn't always been in that particular business. So things still can happen, it may happen slowly, but at least get out there and find a tactical way of how to say things and things may happen. That's right. Thank you for that comment. That goes, Greg, to write what you said and Angela too about patience, right? So come on. Sometimes things take a little bit long and sometimes it may seem as if nothing happening is nothing happening and that may not always be the case. So my Hi. favorite metaphor, I can't, I can't, I don't want to interrupt China. She's going to have a great Just question. Sit there, right there. Don't leave, don't leave. <laughs> but uh, don't underestimate the power of insurgency. Yeah. You know, it, for in, until I was in my 40s, I believed invasion was the right answer. Like I'm going to make something happen and everyone's going to know it. And, and something happened in my 40s where I started to appreciate the power and speed of insurgency, just change one person and then change another person. And, and don't work on the, the late adopters and the resistors, work on the early adopters. So find that one executive who's willing to be courageous enough to think, I'm 50 and I'm white and I'm from some farm community, but I can be a meaningful mentor to a black, young, new hired engineer from Chicago or Detroit. And, and if you find that one person who's brave enough on both sides of that equation to make a connection, that's how advo advocacy happens. And I, I think this is an insurgency thing uh, more than an invasion thing. You, we can get somewhere top down, but to really authentically change what that pipeline looks like and therefore what the future becomes, mm -hmm. it's an insurgency. It's just one early adopter at a time. All right, let's go get them. Let's get them. Oh. <laughs> Wonderful. China. Hi. Um, Hi. Everyone said my name is China. Um, <laughs> the question that I had was for the panel to answer about your mentorship and the attributes you look for when you're finding a mentee. And with your own mentorships that you're doing within your company, um, our company, I guess I can say, <laughs> how diverse are those? I can start. Uh, so uh, for my mentees, um, I say yes to everyone, <laughs> uh, at least to start. Thank you, Julie. Right? Uh, if they're willing to come and say, I'd love an opportunity to meet with you, I'd love an opportunity to connect with you, um, I say yes. And we figure out how to fit another hour in my day because we can add hours, right? Um, <laughs> but it's worth it. Uh, so it's so worth it. I have gotten so much more from my mentees than I think sometimes even my own mentors. Um, but I start with saying yes. And then uh, as time goes on, it's really up to them to continue to seek out the opportunity and to foster that partnership and come prepared. Like Trevor had said earlier, you really have to come prepared and optimize that time that you do have with them. Uh, and I love the idea of giving them some questions in advance. Yeah. Uh, it's That can be really helpful to maximize that short time that may ha they may have to give you. Uh, but if I see that they're not prepared, if I see that they're not maybe hearing the advice that I'm providing or they're not making change or not willing to make change, 
then I will likely not continue that you know, mentor-mentee relationship because there are folks that want to make change and make a difference and give 110% to that relationship. And um, so that's, I guess, on the mentee side. On the mentor side, uh, I look for someone that uh, is different than me because they tend to challenge me. Uh, and I'm very much an extrovert, so I tend to try to find folks that are a little bit more introverted and internalize their thinking before they speak. Uh, that has really helped me. My last leader, he was very much um, a thoughtful leader, and he took time before he spoke, and he was soft-spoken, and that's very different from who I am, and I've learned, I learned a great deal from him. That's good. You know, for me, uh, it's a, the standard is really around willingness to work at it. If, if somebody approaches me or if I'm advised that somebody is in need of, of uh, a partnership like that, I'll put as much effort into it as they will. And uh, I've always found that it, that's a pretty simple equation that works well for me. And it's, it's a standard I've been held to by past mentors. In seeking mentors, you know, I, I love the intentionality that Julie talked about. Thinking about it while she said that, I realized I wait, I've kind of waited to be picked by somebody. Um, the people who have been meaningful to me, I didn't seek out. They, they sought me out, and, and, I, and I was open to their input. And, and it's a very diverse group of people looking back. I, I don't have a great teachable point of view about it, but I can say I was never as intentional um, not that I think that's the right answer, but that's my—that's the truth. <laughs> Thanks. Go ahead. Hi. Um, hi, my name is Alana Hall, and thank you all for sharing. Um, I have a. Sometimes I struggle with determining like what questions I should be asking. I've had. Um, I'm an undergrad mechanical engineering major, and. Um, I'm not really sure what I want to do, and a lot of times um, when people have reached out to me in a um, mentor type of capacity, um, they've been willing to help, and I'm that person that's like willing to put in the work. Um, but sometimes I don't know what questions I should be asking them, and then I feel like I've missed out on an opportunity there. So do you have any advice for me on that? Oh, that's good. Thank you so much. Yeah, I think, first of all, I appreciate your vulnerability in saying that. Um, I think sometimes it's just what does success look like to you, right? So as you're trying to find your way, figure out from other people what good looks like to them. Um, and, and, you know, I think through that, you'll find if that also is something that you have passionate about or, um, you know, want to continue to explore. But... There's a lot. I mean, you would be surprised at how many questions you can get. Just do some research, right? So go online and dig for, you know, good mentee questions to ask a mentor. But really, I think you also have to think about what is it that you're looking to discover about yourself, right? And so not every question, not, the purpose of mentors is not always career pathing. Maybe it's, you know, how to be vulnerable. Maybe it's, did I pick the right career field? Maybe it's that I want to be an engineer, a chief engineer, with individual contributor responsibilities the rest of my career and never lead people. How do I do that? Um, but, you know, it requires a lot of self-reflection and research. And 
thought. So I think you heard a lot about being prepared. Be prepared, but you can also say to a mentor if you've built that trust, I don't know what questions to ask you. What should I be, you know, what should this conversation look like? Help me at building this relationship. And if they're a good mentor, they will respect that. Remember that sometimes you're going to hear people describe their own journey, and it's going to sound like this really nice linear thing that they thought out in advance, <laughs> yeah. and like every yeah. step was scripted. It's okay. not the case. Yeah. And I'm not saying anybody's lying to you. I'm saying that everybody's journey is built one step at a time, and it's only when you turn around and look back that it looks linear. Every step was a step into the unknown. Sometimes you have the benefit of a trusted advisor who helps you decide to take a step. Sometimes you just take a step. Sometimes it's the table you walked up to at the career fair and somebody made a good impression on you. You went to an interview and the compensation was right and you felt good about the culture and you took the job. And so, and so you could, you'll become that person someday. You'll be the person who looks back at this series of unknowns and describes it as, as if I built a bridge across the river and I drew it up in advance and I knew exactly what I wanted. <laughs> and, and so you'll, you'll end up giving people that same story. Um, but, but our stories were all built one board at a time in that bridge and then we got to walk across it and it looked like it was planned. Um, so don't feel alone or different. Just take each step one step at a time and recognize that there's always a career horizon. So what you can see now might be that first job after graduation. That's, that's a good horizon. You're going to find out you get there and it wasn't quite as big a deal as you thought. And then you're going to see a horizon that says, well, maybe I want to leave. And I, so I see that manager job. Boy, if I could just get that job, you know, I'd, I'd have the house I want, the car I want, the impact I want. And then three years later, you got a job you thought it would take you 10 years to get. And your horizon will go out again. So that's always going to be part of the story. And I wish I could tell you that you'll get to a point where it's not unsettling, but it's still unsettling for me. I still feel like that that new hire who didn't quite know what to do next often. And, and so getting comfortable being in that space is part of the journey. I'll just note, it's much easier in life to have a employment that's very close to your heart. Uh, I only recently have been in corporate. I started out with Governor Granholm, however, uh, when I couldn't go into the military like my brother did, I quit my job and worked 10 years in D.C. on the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell and LGBT rights. And then after meeting Congresswoman Gabrielle Giffords, anyone would do, the, I dropped what I was doing, stopped that job and went to work in, uh, in making us a safer country with guns in America. And so uh, then only recently came to corporate. So uh, really you should do whatever's keeping you up and what you're thinking about because it's a lot easier uh, to pair your passion and your values with what in the world you're doing. Thank you. Question. Hi. I just want to say, before I even ask my question, each of you have such diverse and amazing backgrounds. Thank you for your honesty. It means a lot. Um, in From my perspective, I never consider it when I work with my mentees about sending the elevator down. I just tell them about keeping my foot in the door. I will keep my foot in the door as long as possible, so I am not the only person who looks like me, who comes from my area, who's had my background. Given that, looking back at your careers, like you're, you're just giving perspective, when the elevator came down to you, when the door was open, what do you wish you could have told yourself at that time? That's Ooh, wonderful. Yeah. 
You know what? Just come stand right here. No, you just let's switch. You just just stand right here. That's amazing. I know for coming, so let's What was your focus at that time when the elevator came? You know, I'll start because I'm very passionate about this. Yes, go, Angela. Go, girl. I must have been told a thousand times by people, you are worthy. I always had that self-doubt, right? I came from this. I didn't grow up with people that were educated. I didn't grow up with, you know, people that spoke so articulately. And I always felt like, am I good enough? Am I good enough? Am I good enough? You are good enough. Mm-hmm. You know, and so I think that is what I would have told myself 20 years ago. And I'm mm-hmm. still trying to tell myself today. You know, so keep that in mind. If somebody gives you the opportunity, they're telling you you're good enough. Don't, yeah. don't do that to yourself. Just accept it. Yeah. I, I completely agree with that. I uh, was given the executive director role in operations, and my first question was, are you sure? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, really. I, that, and, I, and then I thought, why the heck did I ask that? That was so dumb. Um, but it was my self-doubt in my head. And, and it was, are you sure? And why me? Um, and, and he looked at me like I was crazy. I mean, really, because here he's coming after me for an, a promotion. And he knew, he knew why. But um, you really have to reflect on the fact that you are good enough for any opportunity. And you have so much to give. And we all do. And um, you don't know what that opportunity may not only help you, but help those around you and those that you can help as well in your future. Because I know I've, since then, I have definitely done a lot of reaching out to bring folks up. And that is really, um, they've enriched me because I've done that, but they've also been enriched. So it's been really, it's been really fun. It's a very stressful question. <laughs> it's okay. yeah, there's always something, and there's no, um, there's no great uh, thing. I was presented an opportunity yesterday, and so my stomach's been churning for 24 hours oh, because wow. there's no, um, you know, there's no, uh, there's no easy way to answer your question. Because you're still deep introspective. Go with it, Trevor. Go with it. So what, what I would say is uh, it's, it's a little bit of a variation on the theme that's been established, but similar. I, I, would tell my, I would tell myself, looking back, you're not as good as you think you are right now, but you will be better than you believe you will become right now. Oh, wow. Okay. And so it's uh, the, the amount of learning that was, was yet to come um, was unbeknownst to me then. I thought I had the answers. I really didn't, but it turns out to be okay because I learned them. That's awesome. Thank you. Yeah, I know. Good. Seriously. Luckily, it's it's on the uh, recorder. (laughs) Yeah, that's powerful. Uh, How are we doing on time, Brandy? Because I could sit here forever. That's good. Yeah. Do we have any more questions? I I don't want to miss the opportunity. Yeah. Come on. Come take one. Take a question. I'm gonna I'm gonna change it up just a little bit. Yes, please. So because I know the demands that, that's on your life when you take a, a, another step, right? Yeah. So how have you kept your families growing with you? The balance of just staying staying in tune with your families 
especially having young kids. I know Julie very well. I call her super mom. Right? Yes. So, so, so give us your perspective on how to keep that balance and keep your family flowing with you. <laughs> yeah. Thank I'm, you. I'm Carl Browning. This and is I work Carl Browning. <laughs> Thank you, Carl. Thank you. Oh, that's powerful. Go for it. I'm going <laughs> to well, make Carl Julie talk knows, first. Carl knows yeah, a lot of my, how I've been able to balance and keep that. Um, I have five children and two grandchildren and an amazing husband. Um, Right? Uh, <laughs> he's awesome. He's awesome. I know. Um, he is awesome. Uh, it's, it's a, for me, it's about a couple things. One, I'm very fortunate to have a village and not being afraid to rely on that village when you need help. Um, I have a mom, I have a stepmom, and I have a mother-in-law, all that are rock star women. Um, they help me immensely, as well as my sister-in-law. And I mean, I have a village. I'm very blessed to have a huge village. I lean on them when I need help because I can't be everywhere. Um, tonight they're taking my kids to football and cheer and you know making all that possible Hopefully, and feeding them before they go and all of that. Like, wow, it's amazing. But the other piece is about setting boundaries. Uh, so for me, when I'm home, my children, two of my children are very are young. They're seven and nine. And so I set boundaries by putting this away putting the phone away. Um, and, it's, and, and it's not because um, we, we certainly are 24-7 operations type thing, but um, that email can wait, that text can wait, because if they really needed you, it'll ring. And so set that boundary because I only have, I set that boundary because when I get home from like 6, 5.36 to like 8, that's all I have. And then they go to bed. And then they, well, hopefully, <laughs> right? But, but they only are young so long, and I want to be there with them, and I don't want them to see this, you know? I don't want them to see me in my phone. Um, I want them to see me and connect with me, and I want to love on them, and I want to kiss them all over and tell them how much I love them and let them know they matter um, so that they can be uh, amazing contributors as they grow. So for me, it's about setting boundaries and communicating those boundaries to your leader uh, so that they know that that's important to you um, and that they can respect that. Um, and doesn't mean that it's always perfect because there's seven o'clock phone calls at night that happen. Um, but if that's the minority instead of the majority of time, then I'm usually good. So. Thank you. Did anybody else want to? I'll just add to that, um, you know, we talk a lot about what what's important to our employer. How many of you ask your family what's important to them? And so I'm one of those people that sometimes you'll find me in my office at 7 o'clock at night. Sometimes you'll find that I leave at 3.30 in the afternoon. But that is because I know exactly where I need to be and when I need to be there. And so if my 12-year-old says, Mom, I don't want you to miss a football game, I don't miss a football game. So you have to know what's important to your family and, and what matters to them and figure out how to weave that in. All right, we got five minutes. All right, and so I don't want to, I know we also put, or we in, 
try to embed within this talk the opportunity for an elevator pitch. I think um, there's been a lot of things said here to help you incorporate what you might say when the opportunity comes or what you might want to prepare in advance to think about so that you can be ready when someone asks a question. I want to take a minute to thank all of you, your emails, with my request for mentorship and sponsorship, you will find tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock. <laughs> and I appreciate you in advance for saying yes, Julie, because yes. you already did. I, I um, but even more than that, I just want to take about two and a half minutes. I'll have closing comments, pitches. What do you want? If you never see anybody, we will see the consumer. But if you never see anybody here again, what just what would you like to leave with them? And if we can have all four of you leave some parting words, that'd be great. Well, I want to give you a metaphorical picture that Bob Jones gave me, a mentor of mine uh, a few years ago, the first time a black executive ever took an interest in me. Great guy, human resources director, uh, Detroit Hamtramck. Uh, we would go through the morning meeting and then we'd go out on the smoking porch and uh, I would hang around with him while he had a, had a moment to relax from the morning meeting. And uh, he always said to me, look for the leaders who leave the ladder behind them instead of bring it up with them. And that's who you want to spend time with. And so that's the, I know we got an elevator thing going on today, but think about the low tech solution. Find that leader who, uh, <laughs> who's climbing up a ladder and leaving the ladder there. And that's who you want to get connected with. That's where you do your insurgency. Um, is, is that leader who left the ladder behind them. And I would just say, if you don't have a personal board of directors, build one. I would also say, if you don't know what the 70-20-10 methodology is to development, Google it. Um, because as we sit here today, this is only the 10%. 70% of what you're going to learn and what will make you grow will be through experiential experiences. So that's what I'll leave them with today. Well, just know that uh, that you're not alone in whatever challenge you're facing. Uh, there are so many people internal and external of your organizations that I think are willing to stand with you uh, in very difficult moments. And uh, you'll not always win. Uh, I sit on the board of the Urban League, and uh, last year uh, an elected official had made some racist remarks. And the executive director of the league called me and said, uh, would your business or could you use your contacts to get other businesses to speak out so we're not alone uh, in our uh, comments in the media? And uh, we had internal discussion and other companies had internal discussion, uh, but the NAACP and Urban League were alone uh, on that week uh, and stood alone in calling out uh, an elected official for, for racist remarks. And uh, it is 2019. And every day is a battle. For the first time ever, uh, last year, we were able to raise the fried flag at Consumers Energy, which is awesome. <laughs> but just know uh, that um, you don't have to feel alone, and you're not going to win every battle. Uh, but we really are winning. Trust me. Yeah, that's so awesome. Uh, I would say uh, if you don't have employee resource groups at your company, be one. Start one. Uh, inspire others to build one together with you because it's important. There is a, a lot of value in bringing a group of people together to fight challenges and barriers uh, together. 
Um, I know it meant a lot to me to be a part of those employee resource groups at Consumers Energy, and, uh, and you can do it. And don't be afraid to take that opportunity to make a difference. Awesome. So um, let's give our panelists a round of applause. And um, for all of you attending today, we have um, about 45 seconds left. I will leave you with this. So going back to our central theme of sending the elevator back down, will you be prepared when the door opens? I would like to leave you with a thought. So prior to coming here today, what if your next opportunity came from someone sitting on this panel? And so the, the general communication is we all have work to do to understand how we perceive the people who will open the doors for us. And if I could leave you with anything, is be open because you don't know what that elevator door swinging open is going to reveal. And if it swings open when you have a closed mind or a, a lack of understanding with who can really help you, it's a missed opportunity. Don't miss it. Thank you so much on behalf of Consumers Energy for coming. Have a wonderful day. Thank you for listening to Sending the Elevator Back Down. Will you be ready when the door opens? A professional development seminar presented by Consumers Energy featuring Executive Director of Leadership and Organizational Development, Angela Nadell. Vice President, Greg Salisbury. Executive Director of Gas Construction and Transmission Operations, Julie Hegedis. Director of Customer Experience, Trevor Thomas. And Human Resources for STEM Talent Acquisition, Monique Wells. If you have enjoyed this presentation, be sure to attend the Women of Color STEM Conference. For more information on how you, your company, or organization can take part, visit www.womenofcolor.net. For college students, contact us at 410-244-7101.